First, your insights from near Ukraine. Observing that war when your home is just 200 kilometres from the Russian border makes it all very personal. Even if you're an official advisor to NATO, one who's supposed to coolly stand back and assess what might come next. That's the story we'll hear now from Dr. Janis Sartz, who's based in Riga, Latvia's capital. He leads NATO's Centre of Excellence for Strategy and Communication. At an Australian Institute of International Affairs webinar last month, he offered the insights of on attitudes within neighbouring states, Latvia, Sweden, Lithuania, Finland, towards their neighbour Russia, with whom they have a lot of history, shall we say. It gave his analysis a different flavour to what we typically hear, and I spoke to him earlier. Well, thank you for having me. One of your key points, Dr. Sartz, was that people in your area had been warning for several years that elements inside Russia would be ready for aggression towards nation states around them, that a winter was coming, as you put it. And you were right. Why weren't you and others like you taken more seriously? Well, (laughs) I think that's because people like to live in the preferred perception of reality. And I can't blame uh, them for that. Uh, It's nicer to live in a world where a war like we've seen in Ukraine is not possible. The unfortunate uh, thing about this approach is that doesn't match the reality. And... uh, I think we, the the, the Baltic nations in particular, were treated, uh, let's say, as Russophobic for quite some time because uh, people just didn't like what we were trying to say. And they would rather see it as a possibility to cooperate with Russia, gain some business, but didn't see the underlying trends um, under that, Mm. which... uh, unfortunately, were were true about, and they were wrong. Well, didn't they also say to you, look, you're all traumatised by your history, you bolts, um, and, you know, you've lost your perspective? Well, yes, of course they did so. Of course, not everyone. There's been a mixed, uh, but but if we think at the majority of voices, of course, there was a skepticism and underlying theme, if I may guess, was this, oh, that's part of your traumatic history. But one of the reasons we actually understood was because of that history. I, for my own part, I've lived in the Soviet Union first 18 years of my life. So I have these kind of ability to sense the Russian society in a ways that it is very hard for someone who's who's kind of external. And uh, to me, that has been like quite clear that this kind of uh, cataclysm is coming. And I was uh, by far not the only one in this part of the world. So that was this history being part of the Soviet Union one of the, was one of the reasons we were so well equipped to mm. to predict what is coming. Do you mean with or without Putin, really, that cataclysm was coming? Well, it's hard to distinguish at this point in time, you know, this uh, discussion about history, what if. Uh, certainly with Putin, it has been coming. Uh, and in a way, uh, part of the reason it has been coming is also our own fault. The way uh, we as a collective West uh, responded to his invasion in Georgia of Georgia in uh, 2008, the way we responded 
to 2014, uh, Crimea and Donbass afterwards, how we responded to the interference in the elections, all led to his conclusion that this kind of uh, war is possible and he can get away with it. Whether that would have happened without Putin at the head of the state, it's anyone's guess. I mean, you were also, I think, a special advisor to Georgia on integration uh, in NATO. And given what has been remarkable scenes in Georgia in this last week, uh, with their great rising up against any suggestion that the Russians would start interfering with their laws, did that surprise you? No, actually, I was waiting for this kind of popular reaction because uh, one of the things that have been happening in Georgia, I would argue that is a slow creeping in of the Russian power in Georgia through the oligarchic control that the current uh, Georgian government uh, is having from from at least one uh, oligarch. And in a way kind of suffocating the democracy in Georgia, if uh, I may put it this way. And I was expecting at some point in time that the people would be reacting to this because the way the current Georgian government has been trying to play it is on the outside, they say, of course, we are for EU and NATO integration, but practically they, they do everything to the country to that. I think at some point it would have been exposed and this law on foreign agents, which is just like the Russian law that uh, basically killed all the last remnants of the uh, independent media, is what was the tipping point, in my view, in in Georgia. So I think uh, what we've seen there is on the background of a quite a long shift of Georgian government's kind of priorities more aligned with Russia than EU or NATO. And where do you think that's heading? Well, I think uh, very much will be also dependent on the way the war in Ukraine goes. But I think there'll be more of the uh, protests in Georgia. And I would expect it might end up with some kind of uh, new new elections at some point in time, but there might be some popular eruption. All yeah, right. More um, trouble. What could the West have done differently realistically? Like you were at that Bucharest meeting in 2008 about whether NATO, whether Ukraine was going to join NATO or not. And there's, you know, as you know, a lot of debate as to whether that's where things went particularly wrong in terms of suggesting to Moscow that there was going to be endless move, moves east by NATO. Now, what do you think about that? Well, there's one fundamental question, and that is, do we treat the right of nations, every nation, to decide their own future equally? If we do that as NATO, as a West, then obviously this Russian idea that they are given their sphere of influence, where they have their say and the countries are subjects to the Russian will, is not what we can accept, uh, can we? So in that line of logic, I would argue that we might have probably needed to give the membership to uh, option to Georgia and Ukraine, which was debated. But then were Georgia or Ukraine ready for that at that point in time? I'm not actually sure. I don't think that 
would have translated extremely well in the trajectory of those countries. Right. But I would say certainly right now Ukraine would be ready because I don't see how it uh, in any time could become once again a authoritarian or oligarchic country after the war. Look, your definitions of warfare are interesting. You you think it's basically a contest of wills, that that transcends military or technological equipment. And you've got a marvellous quote, democracy is never as weak as it seems and autocracy is never as strong as it likes to appear. Is this central to trying to understand how the war might proceed in Ukraine, in your view? Well, yes, it is, in my view. Uh, of course, tanks matter. Like when you see a tank on a battlefield, it's a very intimidating piece of equipment. But it is still just a piece of equipment that is run by humans. And the human will has been a very important part of the warfare always. One thing I think we have to appreciate when you talk to the Ukrainian soldiers they understand why they're fighting, what they're ready to sacrifice. They're ready to sacrifice their own lives and for what it is. But if you look across the front line, those people on the other side don't really have the same cause. They've been told stories These are the Russians. from Kremlin. Mm. But if you're really there on this battle line, these kind of stories kind of appear what they are, just... Uh, hallucinations. So, of course, right now, this front line still holds. Yes, Russia is attacking, suffering big losses. But ultimately, in my view, this world war will be decided through the battle of wills, which uh, Ukraine will win. Of course, in this battle of will, which is, is, is very important also to have some equipment to go with your will to defend um, so that is uh, the part that we have to play is provide people in Ukraine that are ready to sacrifice everything with the right equipment to defend their country. I mean, the Russians are still lining up to mobilise, though, aren't they? And there's quite a lot of evidence that large parts of the Russian society either doesn't get involved or or is on the side of of war. Their nation is at, is at war and that's it. Don't need to know anything more. Absolutely, I agree with you in the sense that when we judge by the behaviors of the Russian people, they're either, let's say, uh, ambivalent or supportive of the war, but it's not the same thing as you would look at the Ukrainian side that are ready to sacrifice everything. Russians might support, but their readiness to sacrifice uh, their own lives is not really there. Most of those that have been killed have not realized what they're um, up to because they've believed in the propaganda and the idea that there are very minimal losses and everything is going according to the Putin's plan. So that is where I think is the biggest mm-hmm. risk for the Russian machinery, that at some point in time, if uh, Ukraine is successful in their spring offensive, which I would expect to come in, in a matter of weeks, the morale of the troops just collapses and they turn around and go away. 
And just let me tell listeners that uh, Dr. Yanis Sartz, who's head of NATO's Centre of Excellence for Strategy and Communication, is with us. He's based in Riga in Latvia, which has, I think, a sort of quite an interesting perspective on what we're all what we're living through or what particularly you are over there. Look, a, a couple of other interesting angles on this. You specialise in communications uh, during warfare, particularly, and you presented some surprising figures about Russian spending on military and their communications. They're about equal, you say? Well, the trajectory of the spending, of course, <laughs> the overall spending on the military because of the equipment is very expensive, is, is larger, but the way the spending has increased, uh, almost tripled for the military requirement, the same trajectory of the spending has happened with the Russian government's uh, spending on the media. It's like the big Russian uh, media and other systems, but they have internal and external subsidiaries. And even on top of that, I assume people in Australia might not be aware, but certainly in this part of the world, most of the people know that, that outlets like Sputnik, and RT are in fact running a number of proxies that don't show any link with the Sputnik or RT, but de facto are funded by those and are used as a proxies to disseminate the narratives of, of this um, Russian state media while being covered as if an independent entity. Um, they don't shy away to say that uh, these media are their weapon. Look, can I ask you this? Are you frightened sitting there in your Riga office? I mean, you say the war is regional, but the consequences of globe is, are global. It could be anywhere. It's Ukraine now. I mean, how much does that preoccupy Latvians, for instance? Well, it preoccupies Latvians a lot. If you would walk just on the streets of Riga, there would be a lot of Ukrainian flags uh, being uh, put outside in different places. I think, uh, of course, we have to note uh, Latvian society has significant proportion of uh, Russian speakers that have uh, come here during the Soviet period. So the, the attitudes might be mixed but that would be wrong to say that they support Putin, but there are some that do. But majority, I'd say 80% of the Latvian society is very much on the Ukraine side, and many people on the street would say Ukraine is fighting our battle. Look, final question. You are fairly realistic too, so you do think Ukraine will win, but the consequences all round will not be pleasant if Russia loses. What are you getting at there? Uh, so my, my expectation is that Ukraine would win it, but this Ukrainian win, whatever it would look like, and there's a whole debate on this, it will create a weakness at the center of the power in Russia. And that, in my view, given the number of private armies there are in Russia right now, individually loyal forces in Russia, it might spell the period of big instability within Russia, which in its own right is a very demanding security situation for the neighbors. 
but also kind of globally given the, the nuclear weapons stockpiles and etc. etc. So there will be no respite uh, even if Ukraine wins. There will be continued instability in Russia. And it is very hard to predict how it will pan out, the number of scenarios. But most of them would, would spell a different security challenges, certainly for the region, I would say, for, for NATO and Europe as well. The calm and nice blue sky period is nowhere in a vicinity, unfortunately. Broad sunny uplands aren't quite ready yet, as, as Churchill would say. Uh, look, yeah. thank you very much indeed for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. Dr. Yanis Saat speaking to us from Riga, the head of NATO's Centre of Excellence for Strategy and Communication. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.